So our next uh, discussion this morning will be given uh, by Dr. Rafi Landovitz, who is a professor of medicine at University of California, Los Angeles. Rafi is one of our superstars in the investigation of preventive therapy for HIV, has led um, almost all of the major <laughs> clinical trials most recently uh, presented on preventive therapy, and he is going to talk us, to us about latest updates on HIV prevention. Rafi? Thanks, Dr. Benson. Uh, thanks, everybody, for sticking with us this morning. It's always really hazardous to stand between um, people and lunch, so um, I'm going to try and be pithy here. Um, okay, uh, so these are uh, my disclosures. Um, what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about oral prep to start with, and um, what I think are the, is the most challenging current um, clinical decision-making uh, uh, sort of crossroads that clinicians are facing, which is what to use um, for oral prevention if that's what someone um, is interested in, in pursuing and what the decisional balances are. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the new CDC testing algorithms, um, which came out in the 2021 guidelines, which um, are pretty controversial. And, you know, I love stirring the pot about this, so this will be really fun because I'd love to hear what you guys think. Um, uh, and then we're going to talk about um, uh, injectable prep and some of the agents that are in advanced clinical development that hopefully will move the field forward. So first of all, our first agent that was FDA approved um, for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, TDF-FTC, the artist formerly known as Truvada, now available generically, um, just in case anybody does have access to TDF-3TC, that's generally considered to be interchangeable. Um, so if that's the only thing you have access to, that's completely fine to use. Any of you have heard me talk on this topic before know this is one of my favorite slides on the planet, because if anybody just puts up lists of clinical trial results and their levels of efficacy, you all will be on your Instagram and your email in 30 seconds and not paying any attention. So I created this little puppy um, actually in 2015 um, because I grew up in the northeast of the U.S. And I don't know if this is a thing in Chicago, so you guys can tell me. Um, but in the northeast around the holiday time, churches, synagogues, bazaars, mosques, they do um, philanthropic fundraising. And outside of the place of worship, they put a big thermometer. And then they fill up that thermometer with some sort of color as they're reaching their fundraising goals. That's the concept here. Right, so each figure is the sex at birth of the population that was studied. How full the figure is, is the point estimate of the protect, preventive efficacy with regard to HIV incidence in each trial. So what you can see here is there's a wide range of outcomes, including some um, ones where there are some women standing in puddles. Um, we'll come back to that in just a second. Um, but the, um, the variety of clinical trial results when TDF-FTC daily prep was being studied caused a tremendous amount of consternation and confusion among providers and among consumers. And do, why does it seem to work in, in cis men and trans women, but not in cis women? But oh, look, it can work in cis women and what's going on. And um, we'll get to what the punchline is in just a second. 
Um, but I want to come to the lower left corner um, of this slide, which is the voice study, which was the a study that in follow-up to the partner's prep study in the upper right was supposed to be the confirmatory study for cisgender women whose predominant sexual route of exposure to HIV is vaginal intercourse. Um, this was supposed to be the confirmatory study for that. Um, and what you can see here is there was actually a trend, the point estimate was towards harm. There was increased HIV acquisition among the women who were randomized to active TDF alone or TDF with FTC. Um, and that really turned everybody on their head. And I really struggled when I made this slide about how do you present a negative point estimate? Do I turn the character on its head? Do I put a shadow in back of it and fill up the shadow? Or do I put a puddle under it? And I asked my division chief at the time, Judy Courier, who if any of you know her, she's incredible. I said, Judy, what do I do? She said, definitely not the puddle. Um, <laughs> The reason she said that is when I first drafted this slide, I used red. <laughs> I think it works okay in blue. I will tell you, I keep a copy of this slide with it in yellow at home just because it makes me giggle. But um, regardless, um, what's happening in the lower right corner here, um, the little guy with the French beret who sort of, sort of looks like a psychotic mime from jail, um, what that is is it's a different way of dosing. It's not daily dosing of TDF, FTC. Um, that used to be called disco dosing. We now call it 211 or on-demand dosing. It actually works. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the punchline, the punchline of all of these studies we now have come to understand is this works both for rectal exposures and vaginal exposures, and that's really the essential difference about the way we need to think about PrEP biomedical prevention efficacy, right, because the drug concentrates differently in rectal tissue as opposed to cervical vaginal tissue in the female genital tract, and what we know is the TDF component specifically concentrates much better in the rectal compartment than the cervical vaginal tissue, and we think that that leads to these observed trial results, not because it can't work in the vaginal compartment, but because it's less forgiving to missed doses. You need to be more, if you will, religious about the daily dosing to get um, uh, high levels of protective efficacy in the cervicovaginal compartment as compared to the rectal compartment. What we believe to be true is if taken daily as prescribed, TDF efficacy um, for rectal exposures is north of 99%, um, and it's probably somewhere in that ballpark, too, for vaginal exposures. The data, um, and this is all sort of post hoc analysis, this is from analysis from Deborah Donnell that was published in JADES um, in 2014 um, uh, from the Partners Prep Study. Um, they only did plasma measurement of concentrations, which is not um, a, a, a particularly good biomarker of long-term adherence. It's just a short-term adherence marker, suggested about 94%. But high levels of protection is attainable. We think you need six or seven doses per week. There's some newer data that suggests maybe you can get some pretty high levels of protective efficacy with less frequent dosing in the vagina, but I would not recommend it, and that really isn't where the field is yet. But you can be down to as few as four doses per week and still have high levels of rectal protection.
um, which is really important to know as we talk about other ways you could potentially take that drug. So here's the punchline, right? Something that you all know from your clinical practices, if you don't take a drug, it doesn't work. You can't expect it to work. And if you looked at the correlate of the protective efficacy with biomarkers of adherence to the drug in these early PrEP studies, you can see a fairly close linear correlation. You're wondering why that red dot is bouncing there. It's not just to make sure you're still awake. Um, it's that they, um, they only used pill counts. There weren't actually biomarkers in that particular study proud, and so we don't actually know what the, what the concentrations were. But let's talk about this um, disco dosing for a second. When this first um, was being described as something people were trying in the field, a lot of preventionists said, don't do that. That's not going to be a good idea. And what we're talking about is if somebody is planning to have sex, let's make this up. Today's Friday. This weekend, I don't know, tomorrow, right? Um, then the idea is people were sandwiching that planned sexual activity um, with TDF FTC dosing. Um, it was called disco dosing because back in the day people actually went to discos, right? I don't think that people call it that anymore, but you get the concept. But um, so Jean-Michel Molina, who's um, at the University of Paris, um, did this really Im interesting study because he said, hold on, maybe it's not so crazy. The other studies seem to have shown that four or more doses per week confer high levels of rectal protection. Um, mightn't it be true then that, that this sandwiching um, uh, of sexual activity around these doses might work? And he did the hypergay study in France and Quebec. Um, and the dosing is sort of what's shown on this little schematic. If there's planned activity that's going to happen on a certain day, taking a double dose of TDF, FTC, two to 24 hours before that planned sexual activity, and then following that up with a single dose of TDF, FTC, 24 hours after the double dose, and then a third and final dose of TDF, FTC, 24 hours after that second dose, again, sandwiching the sexual activity was studied in a TDF-FTC active versus placebo study. Uh, punchline, 86% reduction in HIV incidence in the active versus the control arms of that study. Importantly, however, this really is designed for people who's have, who are having infrequent sexual exposures because the, the sort of asterisk on this dosing regimen is if the planned sexual activity from Wednesday also happens again on Thursday, maybe on Friday, maybe twice on Friday, and then again on Sunday, let's say, what the instruction is that you keep doing the single doses every 24 hours until 48 hours, so two doses, two days after the last sexual activity. So 211, which is what this sort of regimen has come to be called, devolves very quickly into 2111111111, which is daily dosing, right? So this really is for people who are having sexual activity on average about once a week or less frequently. Um, it doesn't really make sense to sort of attempt to dose it in this way in other contexts because it turns into daily dosing. But it does work. Now, a lot of people are uncomfortable with trying to prescribe this because it's not FDA approved for this, this pattern of use. And the CDC has actually stopped short of recommending it. There's, they acknowledge that it exists and there's data to support it, um, but it, they've not come out and recommended it. Interestingly, the San Francisco Department of Public Health and the New York Department of Mental Health and Hygiene are the two jurisdictions that I'm aware of that have come out with a recommendation for the use of this. The IAS USA guidelines have been recommending it since 2020, so you are on good recommendation standard if you decide to prescribe it in this way. 
Um, the populations that this should be used for, this was only studied in cis men and trans women who have sex with men. You probably can generalize that to all males, um, but we can talk about that later. Do not try this for vaginal exposures. There are no data. Um, interestingly, when that hypergay study went into an open-label extension that Dr. Badimo already mentioned um, called Prevenir, um, on the bottom of the table, this sort of second row there, you can see that if you give people a choice, this was done just in France, not Quebec, of either daily dosing of TDF-FTC or this two-on-one on-demand dosing, it was about a 50-50 wash. People chose one versus the other, and the HIV incidence was really low in both arms. So in real-world settings, it does work. Some people always say, but how do you prescribe it? It's actually prescribed the same way you would prescribe daily oral TDF-FTC. You give people no more than, um, than three months at a time because, you know, really, if they're having any more frequent sex than once a week, it's going to devolve into daily dosing. So you sort of prescribe and monitor it as if it were going to be used daily, and you just give people some instructions. Um, San Francisco Department of Public Health has an instruction sheet for patients that you can print out, use online, and give people um, some ideas about how to dose it. Um, but you bring them in every three months for HIV testing and STI testing the same way you would if it was um, daily dosing. So let's move now to what I like to call PrEP 2.0, TDF-FTC PrEP was PrEP 1.0. We now have a number of other studies that suggest activity for a number of other agents. Let's first talk about TAF-FTC, the artist formerly and currently known as Descovy. Right? We know from the HIV treatment literature that this is a safer from a bone and renal standpoint, but equally efficacious version of TDF-FTC. Right? Yes, it has these other complications that Dr. Gandhi and Dr. Badimo and others were referencing that we'll come to just in a second in terms of met metabolic effects um, and weight changes. We'll come to that. But the major question that was asked in the prevention space was, did this work as well or better than TDF-FTC when used daily for HIV prevention? So there's one study that really gives us information about this that we have the results of. This was done in cis men and trans women who have sex with men. It was called the Discover. It was a Gilead-sponsored study that had to had compared daily oral TDF-FTC to daily oral TAF-FTC. And I'll get right to the punchline. These were the efficacy results. Basically, there were very few incident HIV infections in either arm. Statistically, this was a non-inferiority result, so you cannot say that one was superior to the other in this trial. Um, they worked essentially equally well. The absolute number of incident HIV infections was lower in the TAF-FTC arm, the TDF-FTC arm, um, and very sensitive markers of renal function and DEXA measurements of bone uh, density all favored the TAF-FTC arm over the TDF-FTC arm. So from that, there is a general perception and um, a lot of advertising seems to want people to think that we know for a fact that it is a safer option. I don't know that we really know that. It is FDA approved down to a creatinine clearance of 30, whereas TDF-FTC stops at 60. So there is that to think about. And certainly if you have somebody with a history of non-traumatic fractures or known osteoporosis, it might be a reasonable choice. But um, I've sort of been hearing that a lot of providers ha are en masse, whole wholesale, switching all of their patients um, who are having rectal exposures from TDF-FTC to TAF-FTC, and I don't know that that's warranted. 
Um, this is one of my favorite infographics on the planet. It was made by Julia Marcus, who at the time was at the Kaiser Foundation in Northern California. She's now at Harvard, but this is publicly available. She posted it on Twitter, so you can find it there. I have printed this out. I laminate it, and I keep this in my clinic when I see PrEP patients, particularly ones who are coming in saying, I saw an ad for TAF-FTC, or all my friends are on TAF-FTC. Shouldn't I be on TAF-FTC? Um, and I think it's really important to know a couple of things. First of all, TAF-FTC is a smaller pill. So for anyone, particularly adolescents, where that's a big concern, that may be something that would push you one way or the other. We only have data for TAF-FTC um, in cis men and trans women who have sex with men. We do not have data for any heterosexual encounters, and we do not have um, injection drug information. Um, we have all of those data for TDF. FTC, as you'll see on the left side of the slide, the efficacy is essentially the same. So let's take that off the table. One is not more effective than the other, full stop. Um, uh, in terms of safety, four domains. There are four domains you need to think about. First of all, creatinine clearance, right? We know that in terms of changes in estimated GFR, um, TDF-FTC um, uh, has associated with small decreases, TAF-FTC associated with small increases. Um, so somebody who is at pre-prep-initiation uh, uh, pre risk um, of renal toxicity, either they have a creatinine clearance already less than 60, Monica Gandhi has done, who's maybe in the back, maybe she's sort of tired of this talk and has heard it, oh, there she is, um, uh, uh, has done some really elegant work that suggests that the population who's more at risk for major drops in creatinine clearance with TDF-FTC is starting under 90. So that's somebody that you might want to think about it, somebody who's got other risk factors for um, having renal disease, hypertension, um, uh, diabetes, other comorbid conditions, you may want to think about that in the decisional balance. In terms of DEXA, modest changes in, um, uh, in the opposite direction in the TAF-FTC versus the TDF-FTC. No difference in clinical fractures. That was short-term follow-up, though. I don't know that you would have expected to see differences in clinical fractures, but it is something to keep an eye on. One thing to remember about the bone mineral density losses that are seen on DEXA um, with TDF-FTC is they resolve six months after stopping that drug, at least in adults. The one population where that doesn't appear to be true um, are adolescents under age 25 who are still accruing bone mass. So that may be something that you want to think about, particularly if you have an adolescent who either has a family history or a personal history of osteoporosis or non-traumatic fractures. Um, and then there are these other issues. Um, TAF is associated with weight gain, TDF, uh, FTC is associated with weight loss. We know this. TDF-FTC has an anorectic effect, particularly in the first year. It's a little unclear if that's due to the sort of two to four week gastrointestinal side effects um, that people experience when they're starting TDF-FTC or if there's something more profound mechanistically that's going on that causes that weight loss effect, but it does appear to be a real effect. So there is that difference. And then there are modest differences in what happens to your LDL cholesterol on TAF-FTC compared to TDF-FTC, where on TAF-FTC, the LDL cholesterol goes up. On, on TDF-FTC, it goes down. There's some debate about whether or not that's TDF just being suppressive um, and TAF-FTC um, having just modest effects. But for somebody who you're already fighting to control their lipids, it is something to consider. So those are the four domains I always talk about, and I practice in, on the west side of Los Angeles, so you can imagine what people's reaction are when I tell them, well, you might gain weight. Okay, 
Let's move on to long-acting injectable cabotegravir, which is sort of the new shiny kid on the block, right? Um, FDA approved um, in December of 2021, right? Its brand name is Apritude, but we're going to call it long-acting cabotegravir, right? We've already talked about it a lot in the context of treatment as this injectable regimen, Cabanuva, with long-acting pivirine in combination. Right, so two registrational trials um, led to the US FDA and now a bunch of non-US uh, regulatory approvals as well, HPTN 083 and 084. The, the only really important difference between the trials was the population and the geography. 083 was done in cis, uh, cisgender men and transgender women who have sex with men in, uh, at 43 sites in seven countries, um, uh, including the US, Peru, Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, Thailand, Vietnam. Um, and 084 was done in cisgender women um, in seven countries in southern and eastern Africa. All of them had the same general structure. HIV negative people um, uh, who were at elevated risk for HIV acquisition, generally in good health, ages 18 and up, 084 capped at age 45, 083 had no um, cap on the age. Everybody got five weeks of an oral lead-in to establish the tolerability before giving the long-acting injectable. Footnote, now that it's FDA approved, that oral lead-in is optional, but it was, that's how it was studied in these registrational trials. And then a three-year direct oral to injectable comparison, and the comparator was daily oral TDF, FTC. And then out of this concern that this very long-acting drug stayed in your system for a year to two years or more after your last injection at declining concentrations, what would happen if somebody were exposed to HIV during that period where the cabotegravir is washing out of the body? So presumably it's not at protective levels anymore, but you're exposed, but there's drugs still there. Would you get integrase-resistant virus? Um, and was that going to then make your subsequent treatment more challenging? And so that washout period was covered with a year of daily oral TDF, FTC. We called it covering the tail or step three in this clinical trial. Does that rationale make sense to people? Silence equals definitely yes. Okay. Good. Um, okay, so here are the clinical trial results sort of broken down. Um, long story short, both the blinded trial results on the left side of each of those, these slides, both studies were stopped early for superiority of the long-acting injectable PrEP agent compared to daily oral TDF, FTC, and then continued um, in an open label extension, which is persisting at this point. This year one unblinded analysis that's next to the blinded, everyone was still on their original randomized treatment regimen. They weren't given the option yet to have switched to either product. So this is essentially an extension of the blinded data. Long story, very short, in the 083 study, 66% reduction um, in incident HIV in the injectable product compared to the oral. Um, for the cisgender women, 89% reduction in incident HIV infections, which if you think about it, as, as impressive as 66% is for the cis men and trans women trial, a 90% reduction in HIV incidence among cisgender women where it's been really challenging to find a biomedical prevention product that is sort of acceptable and, and sort of implementable, I mean, it's sort of staggering how successful that study was, I think. So I, I think that's a mind-blowing result. Um, so right now, the study is in an ongoing 
uh, extension where a couple of things happened. Everybody was offered choice of either product. Um, the oral lead-in for people who were starting that cabotegravir was made optional. Um, and there was an opportunity to study different HIV testing algorithms. Wait, what? Okay. Um, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. There, um, at Croy, we did present some bone mineral density data for cabotegravir compared to TDF-FTC, and it kind of looks a lot like the TAF-FTC, TDF-FTC comparison, to be honest, right? We know what happens to TDF-FTC, bone mineral density at sentinel sites goes down. Um, with cabotegravir, it seems to go up. So again, if you have somebody with traumatic fractures, that's reassuring. Does it mean that that's a reason to switch? Not necessarily. Um, okay, testing. So one of the most controversial things um, that happened in the CDC guidelines when they came out in 2021 was a recommendation that viral load or RNA testing be integrated into routine monitoring for breakthrough HIV infections with somebody on PrEP. And the, the, um, uh, the recommendation applies not only to long-acting cabotegravir, that I will explain to you the rationale for that recommendation with long-acting cabotegravir in just a second, but also for oral tenofovir-based PrEP monitoring. And I have heard from so many people that that is not something that is implementable in their settings. It's going to blow costs out of the water, and people don't understand why that's necessary. It's not like we've had a public health scourge of acute HIV infections with just regular antigen or antibody-based monitoring um, of TDF-FTC prep. So when we get to the question and answer period, would love to hear your thoughts on that. I'm happy to share with you mine. Um, but when using long-acting injectable cabotegravir, here's an example of one of the cab prep failures that we had in the HPTN 083 study. What you're looking at here on the x-axis is the weeks from enrollment on the study. What the y-axis is is the cabotegravir blood concentrations. Okay, so the orange circles are the cabotegravir concentrations over time. The green vertical lines are when people got cabotegravir injections, right? So you got a month of daily oral dosing, right? So nothing before they started, that makes sense. Then they're taking their oral dosing. We measured it two and four weeks in, and, and that top line are way above the monkey model correlates of rectal protection. So that top line, if you're sort of there above, you should be okay based on the animal models. Okay, so good levels. And then you get start your injections. There is that little dip between the first and second injection. We'll come back to that. Um, and then injections continue. What you see is out at about you know week 38 out there, that blue line, the site testing turns positive. They were just doing antigen, antibody, and rapid testing at the visit. So they found the HIV infection there. Luckily, we stored specimens. We stored plasma from every visit in this study. So we went back at the Johns Hopkins Central Laboratory, and we went back and did all sorts of sensitive testing on those stored specimens. You actually can find evidence of the HIV infection where that red line is. And what you find is that viral load was the most sensitive way to detect it. It was 860 when it was first detected but the testing at the site didn't flag it. So they went on administering the, the, the um, intramuscular cabotegravir. And what you can see from the um, sort of sensitive low-level genotyping that we did that's listed way at the top of this slide is when this virus first breaks through, 
its wild type with regard to the integrase gene. There was some transmitted K103N, but that had nothing to do with the PrEP breakthrough. It just was, right? But by the time the site found the infection, it had integrase resistance. So the question becomes, you might say, well, so what? You found it earlier. Well, you might have been able to avoid integrase resistance if you found it earlier. So that was the rationale for why the FDA package insert and the CDC guidelines for use of cab prep recommends that you use a viral load to monitor for prep breakthrough on cabotegravir, particularly because, like I mentioned when we were on the panel talking about this phenomenon of there's a price to pay when you go to injectable antiretroviral treatment, that there's a small but real rate of virologic failure um, even with on-time injections, that's true with cab prep also, right? It's a case-level report when daily oral TDF FTC fails, right? We talk about it, it gets presented at conferences, right? Not true with cabotegravir prep. There's, there's somebody in this audience who uh, I was speaking to earlier who has a clinical patient who was on cab prep and it failed despite on-time injections. It got presented at Croy this past year. It happens. It's not going to be as rare, I don't think, as with daily oral prep. So you have to have a high index of suspicion when your tests turn positive. Um, the other thing is people are like, oh, there were no signs or symptoms of acute HIV infection when they, you know, so I didn't send an, an RNA or a viral load. Cab prep failure doesn't look like conventional HIV infection. Our laboratory person from the 083 study, Sue Eshelman, has given it a name. She's calling it Levi syndrome. It stands for long-acting early viral inhibition. Not the cutest name in the world, but the point is, it's different from our usual clinical conception of what it looks like, which is a mononucleosis-like syndrome, lymphadenopathy, oral sores, fevers, all this, clinically silent, clinically protean. You may see nothing but you have these low smoldering levels of viremia. So you have to have a high index of suspicion. Okay, so people say to me, okay, cabotegravir was superior to daily oral TDF-FTC. Shouldn't I switch all my patients to cabotegravir? We can have a great conversation about how difficult cabotegravir prep is to actually use, just as hard, if not harder, than using cabanuva. Um, but no, the best prep is the prep that a person will adhere to, full stop. There is no obligation to switch everybody to injectable PrEP. How quickly do you get protection? We don't know. It's somewhere probably between two and seven days based on PK, but that's my best guess. We actually don't have clinical data. Um, and how do you salvage those failures, particularly because commercial genotypes won't let you get information um, if your viral load is less than 500 in most cases, right? So how are you gonna know if there's low level integrase resistance? Great question. My recommendation is don't try and salvage it with dolutegravir or bictegravir. Salvage it with a boosted PI or an NNRTI if you can exonerate NNRTI resistance. Um, and you know, do we have the will to figure out how to use this drug? Um, I'm not so sure right now, so would love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay, super quickly in our last one minute together, what's the future of prevention that I'm excited about? Rings, vaginal rings. Really exciting, there was a non-nuke-based vaginal ring that had 
depivirine in it, somewhere between 30 and 50% protection. If you actually look at the open label and observational studies, maybe as high as 70% for vaginal protection. It is not gonna get approved in the US. It was withdrawn from consideration, but rings are not dead. People are pursuing it, not just with antivirals for PrEP, but also for um, uh, combined HIV prevention and hormonal contraception, which could be very attractive. So this isn't gonna be the end of what we hear about that. Connie Benson promised you that I was gonna show you the slide, so Connie, here it is. Um, Lena Capavir, you all know, is approved um, as part of heavily treatment, experienced HIV treatment as a every six months subcutaneous injection. It's in phase three clinical trials for PrEP. You do have to do a two-day loading dose with oral right when you start and it is administered subcutaneously every six months. And if any of you are participating in these studies, I'd love to hear your experience because where we're doing it in LA, I hear that it's actually quite painful, these subcutaneous injections. And so tolerability, I'm a little concerned about. I would love to hear what people think. The advantage, of course, is um, you know, assuming it's safe and effective, is if you break through and have resistance, it's not part of first-line treatment, so you haven't compromised your treatment options, and every six months is obviously extremely attractive. Um, people are really jazzed about MABs, right? This a MAB, that a MAB, Tigalexamab, I can't even pronounce a MAB, right? I mean, and so, of course, it won't surprise you that there are MABs for HIV prevention. One was in a phase 2B3 study, it did not work. Um, now they're looking at if one is good, maybe two is better, maybe three is best, maybe four, who knows? Um, so there are combinations of MABs now being tested for prevention. Will they work? Your guess is as good as mine. Didn't seem to work so well in the COVID um, arena, but um, where people are still optimistic about HIV. Um, I think at, at this was already mentioned at Croy, we're still 40 uh, years away from 40 years into the HIV epidemic, we're just as far away from an HIV vaccine, unfortunately, as we were 30 or 40 years ago. The most recent vaccine trial, um, unfortunately, was a complete wash called Mosaico. Um, so we do need these PrEP agents and we need new ones. These were the, the HIV um, uh, survival curves with the probability of HIV infection in the active versus the placebo arm of this vaccine trial. Everybody was incredibly disappointed in this result. And when Susan Bookbinder presented it at Croy this year, like the, the whole temperature in the room went down 20 degrees with the presentation of these data. Um, uh, Dr. Benson and Dr. Bedimo already mentioned Islatravir having sort of been taken out of consideration um, in, in the PrEP space because of this lymphocyte toxicity. Um, I honestly was the most excited about this product compared to all the others in development because it was going to be a once monthly pill. And at first I was not so convinced that that was gonna be really attractive, but then someone said to me, and this is, this is very true for me, is don't you remember to give your dog flea medicine on the first of every month? I do, um, and so this, you know, th there are a number of monthly things that people do. They pay their rent. They, you know, you know, you know, give their dog the flea medicine that they could tie this to and so anchor this to. So I thought this was going to be very exciting. It still hasn't been taken completely off the table in terms of an implant, so that may not be dead. And uh, Dr. Benson referenced that they have an, a follow-on compound. It's got an incredibly sexy name. You're going to love it. 
MK8527. Don't you love that? Yeah, so that's a follow-on compound in the same class that actually is already in human trials. They don't think it's going to have the same lymphocyte toxicity and could be dosed on the same once-monthly schedule for PrEP, so stay tuned for potentially more about that. This once-monthly oral tablet is not completely dead. So where are we? 40 years into the, the pandemic, still have a lot to be done. We don't seem to be that close to a vaccine, so we need these agents. A single agent is not going to get us out of this. We need options. We need choices. Um, and we're 10 years into the approval of TDF-FTC. We still haven't figured out how to get these PrEP agents um, to people who need them, and that's really frustrating. Um, uh, and we really have to figure out what people want and where they want to get these services. So I'll stop there. Happy to answer any questions, and thanks for dealing with me five minutes over. So as promised, a tour de force of prevention. Um, before we move on to Q&A, I just want to do a shout out. We have a driver's license here that was dropped somewhere in the back. Um, James Legusik, if you want your driver's license back, um, come and get it. If you've left already, sorry. Okay, um, first question. This is not prep, but pep. So you didn't talk too much about that, but could we use Bictarbi for PEP instead of Truvada and Tivike? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, Ken Mayer from Fenway Institute has published a case series on safety um, and course completion of post-exposure prophylaxis with Bictarvi. Um, it, it seems like it's a reasonable thing to do. There's no reason it shouldn't work. Um, I'll be honest, the last couple of times I have written for PEP, a lot of local pharmacies have not been excited about um, accessing uh, it in a timely way for PEP, and that's been really frustrating. Um, but I've also been challenged in actually trying to find dolutegravir by itself to use as PEP commercially. So I think you get into somebody whatever three-drug regimen you can get your hands on that's of that tenofovir with 3TC or FTC and an integrase inhibitor into someone as quickly as possible after the exposure. I think that's reasonable. Great. Um, while I'm waiting for other questions, maybe that I just can't read this iPad or this pad here, but um, we'll try this one. In the era of U equals U, what's the marginal additional benefit of PrEP for monogamous, discordant couples with undetectable viral load? Um, great question. Um, uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page, we all know U equals U is sort of how we've devolved this concept. If somebody with HIV is on treatment and undetectable, they are non-infectious sexually, right? Full stop, period, end of sentence. That is not debatable. That is not a question. There have been exactly zero examples of that not being true in the medical literature. Um, so that's U equals U. So if you have somebody who is truly in a monogamous relationship um, and one person is um, living with HIV and is on treatment is undetectable and the other um, does not have HIV, there is no 
utility of adding prep. The million dollar question is, is what does monogamous mean and to whom, right? Is monogamous monogamous or is it monogamish? <laughs> Right? Because, I mean, we all have patients and situations where someone finds out that what they thought was a monogamous relationship actually wasn't, at least on the part of one person in the relationship. And the way that manifests is sometimes with um, an STI, um, and all too frequently that manifests as an HIV infection. So um, if someone comes to you and says, we're in a monogamous relationship and my partner's positive, but he's, they're on treatment and they're undetectable um, and they're not forthcoming about having partners outside of that dyadal relationship, I assume that there's something they're not telling me if I explain U equals U and they still want to go on PrEP. So I will not refuse to provide PrEP in that context, but I will make sure people understand U equals U and what it means in the context of that partnership. Okay, I'm going to ask a couple of my own questions while we give the audience additional time for theirs. Um, so one of the most difficult populations for us to deal with, at least in our clinical group, are adolescents. So what is your favorite approach to PrEP for um, the younger adolescent group, and we, as we all know, the NIH considers you an adolescent up until the age of 24, so I'm not talking about the 24-year-old. I'm talking about the, you know, the 14, 16, 18-year-old group. Yeah, um, great question, and you know, that's the population where incidence is extraordinarily high and challenges to adherence um, are also extraordinarily high. Um, you know, the ATN-113 study looked at 15 to 17-year-olds and found um, not only was adherence poor, it went from poor to abysmal um, over 48 weeks, and the incidence in that population, despite trying to administer PrEP, was 6.3 per 100 person years, which is staggering. Um, so um, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. Um, I think what's clear is adolescents and youth need even more support and more frequent contact um, than we're used to providing. I think trying to do things remotely and not having them have some contact with your clinic um, at regular intervals, um, maybe even more frequently than three monthly, um, is probably something that needs to be considered. Text messaging and social media contact seems to be critical to maintain engagement. Um, and we don't know yet if some of these longer acting agents um, are going to solve some of these problems because you still have to show up for, um, for a visit to get the injection. Um, there was an adolescent bridging study that was supposed to accompany um, uh, HPTN 083. It was led by Sybil Hosek, um, who's at Kroger um, here in Chicago, and they were unable to enroll the study. They only got nine people on the study. So that's all the data we have in adolescence. So we're now, now that there's regulatory approvals, we're going to have to get some real clinical experience with um, how to do this. I have heard that um, the small size of the TAF FTC tablet is a big deal for a lot of adolescents. So that's a differentiating factor that um, seems to rise to the top um, even more for, for youth and adolescents. But if anyone else has additional experience, would love to hear it. I don't think we know the perfect menu or combination of services yet, um, but you need a commitment to 
to figuring it out if you're going to work in those in those populations. So. So, um, so, so, so thanks, Doug. Um, so the question is, right, you know, what led the CDC to make this recommendation for viral load monitoring with uh, tenofovir-based oral PrEP? So if, if you look at the references that, are, that accompany that guidelines, it references two things. It ref, re, references HPTN 083, which was the study that I led. It also references a study in Thailand that showed that older generation antibody tests were actually more sensitive at detecting acute or primary HIV infection than our later or modern generation antigen antibody tests. So they were very um, uncomfortable with the ability of modern fourth generation or fifth generation antigen antibody tests to detect um, acute or early HIV infection. So that's one thing. The HPTN 083 data, in my opinion, and the CDC team knows that I feel this way, and it, we're going to agree to disagree. Um, is I think they're misinterpreting the HPTN 083 data. There was administrative bias that led to a handful of people with hyperacute HIV infection on our TDF FTC arm being found four weeks after, on retrospective testing, they were in the very early throes of acute infection, um, uh, and it was on that basis that the recommendation was made. Um, do I think that that's necessary? I don't. Um, do I do it in my clinic? I don't. Um, because I ask, what are the consequences of missing it even for a month if someone's hyperacute? Um, worst case scenario, you get K65N M184V virus, right? We know from Nadia and VSEN and a number of other studies that um, dolutegravir-based ART or bictegravir-based ART is probably going to work just fine in that setting. And uh, another question from the audience. Can you speak to the data or lack of data and what you talk about to patients who have chronic low-level viremia and, can't, and get significant anxiety because they don't fit the U equals U mold and feel a degree of stigma or guilt about their partners having to be on continuous prep? Yeah, great question. So if you actually look at the studies on which the concept of U equals U are based, less than 200 copies was the definition of undetectable in those studies. If you actually go back to um, uh, the Rakai cohort in Uganda, there actually seemed to be no transmissions below 1,000 copies. But I think 200 is probably the right metric. So as long as somebody is under 200, you can speak with confidence that you, the principles of U equals U still hold. OK. And then apropos of our earlier discussion about adolescence, is there an age requirement for injectable PrEP? Also great question. Happily, none of the FDA-approved PrEP agents have a age floor to their prescription currently. It's a weight-based floor. So as long as somebody is 35 kilograms or 77 pounds or greater, the FDA approval applies. And what are your thoughts on bridging with oral PrEP when initiating long-acting cabotegravir and for how long based on when PK levels are achieved? So that, that's an incredibly insightful and great question. And the answer is nobody knows and there are no recommendations. However, 
Um, if you look at um, that, you know, my PK estimate that after the first injection, um, time to protection is probably somewhere between two and seven days. You could say from that, it would not be unreasonable to do some sort of bridging or overlap with the first week um, after the first injection. Those of you who were paying attention to that one clinical failure case that I put up there might have noticed that there was this nadir between the first and second injections of the concentrations. So some people have asked, should it actually be an even longer period of overlap of a month? So the entire time period between that first and second injection. Um, and I didn't get to talk about this, but this whole concern about integrase resistance during the tail has been essentially debunked. It doesn't seem to happen. You get integrase resistance when you break through cabotegravir prep at high concentrations, not at declining or low concentrations. So the cover the tail issue is kind of going away, but the cover the nose issue is looming large, and no one knows the answer. What do I think the right thing to do is? I think a week is probably reasonable. I don't know that we need to go out to a month, but if somebody chose to do that, I wouldn't say they were crazy. Okay, I think we're out of time and we don't wanna get between us and lunch. So we have, okay, we'll take one last question from the audience, but you'll have to come up to the microphone because we can't hear you back here. Is it okay to start a patient on cabotegravir if they want to, if they don't want to take pills? So the oral lead-in um, uh, is optional. So you're not obligated to do that and use the pills in that way. Um, if they're categorically refusing to ever take pills, I would be anxious um, because if they're late for an injection, you're gonna need to try to bridge them with something. However, if they're at risk and you're worried about them acquiring HIV, you have to make an individual decision with the patient in front of you, you know, what the risks are of using cabotegravir, knowing you're never gonna have that safety net if they're late for an injection. Is the harm reduction approach still to say, I'm, I'm gonna do this, you know, and if you're more than a week or two late for your injection, you have to use condoms. You have to, you have to, you have to. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Landovitz, and thank you for all of your attention. Um, I am assuming that lunch is out in the lobby, and uh, we will see you all back here promptly at 1.20, we're going to start right on time, so thank you all.